For the sermon this morning, we're taking it from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And what I wanted to do to begin with is start out with a thought experiment, kind of get the mental juices flowing. Let's say, for instance, that you are a judge in the district court of Idaho, and a case comes before you, a major antitrust lawsuit against a large corporation. Let's say that it, it's the Simplot Company is being litigated against for, they're accused of ma- manipulating potato prices that they're paying its growers. And it was actually a case like that, I think back in 1994, that went to the, the district court. And hundreds of millions of dollars are at, at stake in a case like this. And it so happens that you own stock in the company. So your decision, the decision of the court, is going to have a huge impact on the value of all of the stockholders' holdings. And would you be allowed to preside over that case? The answer is clearly, you ought not to. (laughs) No, it And why? Because it's very difficult to be objective when you have a vested interest in the outcome. You have an interest in the claims, in this case, the claims of the uh, being dismissed. And, you know, in in that instance, an honorable judge is going to recuse himself or recuse herself from presiding over the case. That's pretty obvious. But what if you have a case before you that is way bigger and you have way more at stake in it and you can't recuse yourself from the case. You must try the case. You must make an intelligent decision about the evidence, yes or no, true or false. Even though you have a hugely vested interest in the outcome, you can't bow out as a judge. What am I describing here? I am describing... The case for the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, it, it makes a huge difference for, for our good or for our, our ill. And, you know, we're not unbiased in our assessment of the evidence. Are there ways that we can deal with this dilemma? Absolutely. I think the first way to deal with the dilemma is to admit it, to be aware of our own bias. None of us approach the resurrection of Jesus from like this neutral vantage point. I don't. I'd be, I, as a pastor, I've devoted what the, the whole of my life to the message of Christianity. And so if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, I've, I've obviously lost an awful lot. But, you know, the non-Christian too is, it's not like they're coming from a, a neutral vantage point. I mean, it matters whether or not it's happened. And um, do you remember back in high school, you read through Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World, you know, the dystopian view of the future, which I remember reading it and, and really liking it. Aldous Huxley was one of the most staunch atheists of the 20th century. And yet I really appreciated the, his honesty. Aldous Huxley said, look, I don't want there to be a God. Me and my friends, we don't want there to be a God. Our goal in life is sexual liberation. And what we have discovered, probably the easiest and best way to achieve sexual liberation, is for there not to be any deity. And so, at least he was honest. And 
The fact is, you and I have all sorts of reasons we can list which either prejudice us for belief in the resurrection or against belief in the resurrection. Have you admitted as much? Uh, Be honest. Pray for wisdom. Pray for intelligence and maturity in evaluating the evidence responsibly. And then, of course, I would say... um, Doubt your doubts. Be skeptical of your own skepticism. And of course I would say that. I, I would say err on the side of, of hope. And the things that Brian was talking about at the beginning of the service. Because if this message is true, it means that your creator is, is trying to come and reclaim you and renew you and everything else into life. So doubt your doubts. Um, be skeptical of your skepticism. None of us is completely objective. I already said that. But this is a case that we cannot punt. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, Jesus breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The apostles had, by virtue of their proclaiming the gospel to the world, they they were proclaiming the forgiveness or non-forgiveness of sins. Verse 24, Now, Thomas, called Didymus, little note here, the Aramaic name for Thomas means twin. The Greek name Didymus means twin. So Thomas was very much a twin, apparently. Thomas, the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you, you, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In verse 30, I read what verse 30 and 31 in the sermon last week. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in John's gospel in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen.
Amen. The first resurrection appearance, appearance that happened in the upper room was on Easter Sunday. The first one recorded in our passage there, starting in verse 19, happened on Easter Sunday. If you were here for the Good Friday service a little over a week ago, I said to you that the best scholarship indicates Jesus Christ was crucified in the year A.D. 33 and was crucified on the day April the 3rd. And it just so happened that this year, Good Friday, was on April the 3rd doesn't always work that way in the church calendar, but it worked that way this year. And what that means is that Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ was resurrected on April the 5th. And a week later, then, we get to April the 12th, which happens to be the same Sunday that Jesus appears to Thomas in the upper room. And fittingly, we could call today Thomas Sunday, <laughs> I thought, what, this, is the, this is perfect how the calendar is lining up this year. Perfect time to cover this passage. And it is a splendid passage. Let's tackle it doing a three-point sermon. Number one, point number one. Point number one, the, the purpose of Jesus' appearance. Why did Jesus appear to his disciples on that very first Easter Sunday evening? And what I noticed this week when I, was, when I was studying, I noticed why he, <clears throat> why he didn't appear. He did not appear and, and, and say, it's me, guys. Um, let's talk about all the great times we've had together. <laughs> now, this was not a, a happy days kind of reunion me, it's me. It's great to be. Isn't it great to, together again? You know, it's not that he he did not come to reminisce. He did not say, "Remember the Sermon on the Mount." Let's go back over that again. He did not say, "Remember, oh, the loaves and the fishes and the five thousand people that we were able able to feed that day." Remember the raising of Jairus's daughter, the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus, this is not a remember when session. Jesus comes to them in the upper room for one purpose, one purpose only, verse 21, to say, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He comes to propel them back out of, out of the room. Um, God, it seems like the God of the Bible never brings us in unless, unless he's going to propel us back out. He flings us Back out. This happened in Thomas's life. You read on in church history, and you discover that Thomas was the first missionary to the Indian subcontinent. And he was, it turns out, a, he was not particularly pleased to be called as a missionary to India. It, the legend has it that when he found out he was being sent there, Thomas said, Lord, I am a Hebrew man. Wherever you would send me, send me, but just let it be somewhere other than India. <laughs> and then the, the legendary story, it's a, it's a fable, but it's a good fable. So a king in India sent one of his personal attendants to Jerusalem in order to find a carpenter 
who would help him build, I'm pres- uh, presuming, you know, a building or, or a palace. I'm going to send my attendant. And so the, this guy shows up in Jerusalem after the resurrection of Jesus, but before the ascension of Jesus. And, and Jesus apparently has gone back to his carpentry business during those 50 days. And he shows up and he says, I want to find, I've come to find the most skilled carpenter in all of the land. And they say, well, you need to go meet Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and says, will you come and work for my, for my master as, as his master carpenter? And Jesus says, no. But I have, I have a guy that, just the guy that you're looking for. And he, and he says, well, how do I know that he'll come with, you, with me back to India? And Jesus says, I'll sell, I'll sell him to you. <laughs> and so later in the day, the king's attendant comes up to Thomas and says, is this your Lord right here? Is this your master? And Thomas says, my Lord uh, and my God. And, and yes, it's my Lord. And the, the Indian man says, good, because I have bought you from him. And, and Thomas is like, I'm a free man. What? And then he realizes that, that he's, been, he's been sent to India. And he goes, and I, I bought you. He goes as a free man, but he goes as a slave. The disciples are gathering here in John chapter 20 in the upper room on Sunday, the first Sunday. I imagine they're gathering for worship. Then what are they doing seven days later on the next Sunday? They're again in the upper room, I think, gathering for worship. And what does Jesus do? He comes and says, you can't stay here all week long. You've got to leave here. Leave worship. And I'm going to propel you back into the world with the message of the gospel. Now, if these guys had gone to their friends and family members and their coworkers and their colleagues, and they had said, we've got great news to proclaim to you. Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Turn the other cheek. Like, that would not have... That would not have reshaped the world, would it? If they had gone back out there and they said, I have the most startling news available, love your neighbor, that message, it's it's not a bad message. It's a decent message, but it's not something that is going to reshape and change the world. They go back out, and what do they say? They say, Christ is risen, and he and the new creation has begun. And we are, you know, inviting you to, to become a, a part of that. Then, okay, the last image here I want to touch on is, what does he do next? He breathes on them. Where is the first place in the Bible that you find, like, a breathing episode, so to speak? Where do you find that? In Genesis. The very beginning of the story, God breathes into Adam and Eve, and then he sends them out into the world to complete his creative work, to tame and bring order and life to the world. Adam and Eve are breathed on, and they go out and become his, his agents of, of creation. And Jesus Christ breathes on them and says, I'm going to make you go out there and you be my agents of new or second creation. That's what's going on. I read a statistic this week for people in America who grew up in churches like our own. If you grew up in an evangelical church or church culture, 
about 90% of those people made decisions to follow Jesus at some point in their lives. 90%. But by the age of 35, any idea how many people are still of, those, of that group are still following Jesus Christ? That 90% goes all the way down. Only about 25% of them are, are still doing so. It's a reminder. The whole thing is just a re- reminder. Uh, we are not trying to like get people to sign on the bottom line and just make a decision. Easter is probably the biggest evangelistic Sunday of the entire year, and we can get off on the, the wrong impression that we're just trying to make get decisions for Jesus. No, we are, we are here to help people enter into an enduring new life with Jesus. And we, we're sent out so that people, when they walk away from a conversation with us or an interaction with us, would be a little bit closer to the resurrected Jesus. We're not going out to get decisions. We have been breathed on by the Lord. And so that we're supposed to take new life, new, new uh, agents of new life into the lives of our friends and family members. Just don't, don't forget that. Second point, I've labeled it the nature of biblical faith. The purpose of Jesus' appearance, the nature of biblical faith. I'm going to say back in the 80s, it was probably the 80s, uh, as I study the Bible, I become more and more just familiar with different trends and fads associated with interpreting certain you know, passages. And it's, I mean, biblical interpretation, like the realm that I spend a lot of my time with, is not very different than what you do. I mean, whatever your field is, whatever your field of inquiry, you become, the longer you're in it, the more and more you're aware of trends and fads. And Well, I would say back in the early 80s, the trend was to see this passage and read Thomas as kind of a, a modern figure. Uh, a, a skeptic who simply won't believe until he has visible you know, scientific proofs. He's, he's kind of your modern man. Well, you come into the early 2000s or so, and Thomas becomes sort of a postmodern figure. He's, he's this likable postmodernist who, um, he wasn't there for the original meeting, and he's not going to take somebody else's word for it. He's going to... Um, it's, it, he's, he's doubting, and, and doubting is good, and <laughs> skepticism is good. He needs to form his own perspective. He's not there at the original meeting, presumably, because he's already out changing the world for Jesus. They're huddled up, and, and he's out working. It's, it's good to doubt, and, and um, yeah, don't take other people's word for it. Well, the disciples say, we have seen the Lord, and Thomas says, you know, fine, but that's your perspective, and I need to form my own perspective. I need to see too. But that is not what Thomas says. He does not say, I need to see too. What does he say? He says, I need to stick my hands up inside of the wounds. Like, that's a pretty radical form of skepticism. I mean, unless I stick my hands in there, Funny way of putting it, your friend Joe walks into your hospital room as you are lying there in bed suffering from um, some 
accident. And Joe says, I know I, you are faking. I know that you're not injured unless I stick my hands into your chest cavity. <laughs> I think you're lying. You know, if you have a friend named Joe who does that, he's got some issues. <laughs> Thomas should have believed Thomas should have believed at least these guys. He, this, is the, this is his best, these are his best friends. They spent the last three years of their lives together. That's got to count for something. Maybe he shouldn't have believed anybody, but he should have believed these guys. He's seen their lives. He's, he knows that these are sort of hard-headed fishermen types who are not by disposition prone to hallucinations. I mean, these are very salt of the earth, good old, you know, Idaho farmers, not known for, for weird, you know, they're salt of the earth kind of guys. They're honest men. He should have believed them. Instead, what does Thomas do? Thomas conjures up his own set of tests. I mean, he, he, uh, he writes up, I've got, okay, I'm going to have to do the, the hole in the finger or the, the hole in the hand test. I'm gonna, the hand in the side test. Order that one up, doctor. You're going to write that up in your... Um, I'm only going to believe in God if I do the hole in the finger or the hole in the hand test. I'm only going to believe in Jesus if, if I perform a certain kind of test. And doesn't that sound relatively familiar? We're, we do that all the time. We come up with these different tests, modern tests of God. God, I will believe in you. I'm only going to believe in you, though, if you heal you know, my mother of cancer. I, I will I'll believe if you give me the job or the boyfriend or the girlfriend or the car. What is remarkable at John chapter 20 is that this is remarkable. Sometimes Jesus actually agrees to our terms. Sometimes he agrees to our tests. And I've known people who have come to faith in Jesus that way. I mean, they, they set up some arbitrary litmus test. Okay, you got to do it this way, Lord. And he does. He said, Thomas, I see this little test that you've set up, and I will agree to your terms. I'll do it. And sometimes he does it. But the point here is, is mostly that that's, that's not normally the way of biblical faith. Blessed is the man who believes without seeing. There is, there's a lot, there are multiple ways that we, we come to believe things. I'll give you an example of this. Um, multiple valid ways. When the kids were younger, we would go to the Boise Zoo when they're you know, little tykes. Because the zoo, as you young parents know, is a great activity to get them outside and keep them occupied and, and entertained. And, and we have a great, our zoo is my favorite zoo. We have, Megan over here works at the zoo. It's, well, if you remember back in 2010, the big new addition to the zoo was the, anybody? The red panda exhibit. Everybody was looking forward to the red panda exhibit. And I, black and white panda, red panda. How does, I've, I thought, I've got to go see this. Red panda. So we, we went over and... Uh, I s- stood in front of the glass case and <laughs> thought, this is, a, this is a red panda. It looks like 
a brown squirrel with even big whiskers. That's not a red panda. This is underwhelming. If you've seen. Now, I knew that red pandas existed before I went there. My friends, they had beat me to the exhibit. They had already... They had already been and seen it. I read about the wet red pandas in the newspaper. But then I got to see it with my own eyes. You know what? I didn't believe any more, um, any more strongly in the existence of red pandas after having seen it with my own eyes than I did previously on the basis of the testimony of others. We believe a lot of things with, without personal empirical Verification. I would guess that the majority of our human knowledge is not based on personal empirical verification. It's, it's actually based on the fact that we believed somebody who was believable when they told us that they had seen it or heard it or, or touched it. And we believe in very odd and strange things that believable people tell us. So there was a science article that the Associated Press picked up um, on at the beginning of the month, or maybe it was the, the beginning of March. The title of the article was this, Dark Matter Just Got Darker and Weirder. Observations by two powerful space telescopes have revealed that the mysterious stuff which we call dark matter, which makes up nearly 85% of the universe's total matter is weirder than we ever thought. In his new research, and I forgot the first name of this guy, we'll just call him Professor Harvey, Scientist Harvey, and his team observed two galactic star clusters colliding. And as they did, as they observed this, as, they, as this happened, the clouds of dust, they noticed, would begin to experience drag and they would slow down, and they would eventually stop altogether as they're colliding into one another. But then they studied the dark matter. What happens to dark matter when galactic star clusters, um, when the, the, the dark matter collides with itself? And the researchers realized that the colliding clouds of dark matter slide through each other seamlessly. And it's okay. 85% of the universe is made of this stuff that is entirely invisible. It does not scatter or reflect um, or emit light. It's, 80, it's invisible. It can pass through regular matter seamlessly. It's so invisible that it's invisible to itself. It passes through itself seamlessly. That is weird. And it's something that I believe. You know, there are a lot of Christians that are deeply skeptical about any scientific claim that's made today. I'm not one of those. I've, I find, generally speaking, scientists to be believable and strange and, like, nonsensical as that is, of the invisible being invisible to its own self. And 80% of the universe is made of this stuff. I believe it. Here's my point. I... I would love to be able to pull out a miracle bag and show you Jesus Christ this morning. I obviously can't. Uh, here's Jesus. Believe in him. I can't. But I think I can. And I think Christianity has provided compelling reasons for believing in him. I mean, we're 2,000 years into this. 
they had evidence that was persuasive to them. Um, the eyewitnesses wrote down their testimony, uh, and that testimony of theirs is what's meant to lead us to our own faith. The disciples that are here in John chapter 20, we could say that they were transitional figures. They were the end of an era. They were the last ones who ever saw Jesus Christ face to face. But John says that these guys are going to sort of hand the baton off to the rest of us who will be blessed, not because we saw things with our own eyes, but because we believed the testimony of believable people. Faith is not belief in something that has absolutely no evidence. Faith is believing in something based on the testimony of believable people. And that's what we're trying to share with, with you. <laughs> okay, thirdly, let's talk about the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Back to verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. What do you notice, what do you notice here? You notice that, G, that they did not, or at least as the story is told, they did not go and you know, take out the deadbolt and unlock the door and open the door. The story is told in such a way to give the very strong impression that that door was still locked when all of a sudden he walked through it. He passed through the door. Then you look earlier in chapter 20. You find the, the, the description of the grave clothes that are there in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. John writes that description in such a way, we're not going to look at it right now, but in such a way as to suggest that it's almost like Jesus' body passed right through the grave clothes. And so they're laying there kind of empty <laughs> inside because he passed. He didn't unwind all of them. He passed right through them. You say, well, oh, okay. So Jesus is a ghost. Well, that doesn't quite work because you go to chapter 21, the very next chapter of the Gospel of John, and what do you find Jesus doing? He's on the shore of a lake making a fire so that he can have a breakfast of fish. They eat a fish breakfast this, this next day or so. A breakfast of fish with his disciples. Maybe you've seen the uh, kind of the iconic painting of this moment of the Thomas in the upper room. It was captured by the Italian Baroque painter Caravaggio. It's entitled The Incredulity of St. Thomas. The painting, if you've seen it, you'll recognize this description of it. The painting is of a very European-looking Jesus standing in front of a, a squinty-eyed, skeptical Thomas is he's sort of bent over and he's got his arm out and his index finger uh, pressing into Jesus body and, and he's kind of like can this be can this be real can it can it be and his index finger is actually pushing on Jesus body here's the complicated picture that we're given on one hand Jesus body can be touched and it can be handled. On the other hand, Jesus' body can pass through wooden doors and pass through uh, thick grave clothes. On one hand, Jesus' body is able to take in air, fill up the lungs, 
And then what? How does it work? The, the diaphragm contracts and it expresses that air back up out of the lungs through the esophagus, vi- hitting and vibrating the vocal cords, and the mouth opens and sound comes out. On one hand, his body can, can do that. On the other hand, his body may not be pumping any blood through its veins. I never thought about this before until this week. But, I mean, was his heart pumping blood? Because how would that work with five very large holes in his body, right? If that was happening, how would he not hemorrhage? How would that work? He can breathe. He can talk. Can he bleed? What if he... uh, It's... It's a very fascinating thing to consider the, um, the physical aspects of the body of Jesus Christ and sort of the, the strange, I don't know if you call them non-physical aspects of the body of Christ. Um, here's the, the best illustration that I've ever heard of this. I want you to picture in your mind, get the, the picture of the face of a clock. And it, I mean, oh, it's perfect because this is, look, okay, let's do this together. Look back at the... <laughs> At the clock. So you, the, at midnight, you, it, I know, I know, I know. At midnight, you've got the, the minute hand all the way up and the hour hand on top of each other. Now, they'll move throughout the course of the day and, and they move at different rates of speed, the hour hand and the minute hand. Those two never line up again identically until when? until right now, until noon. And in clock terms, midnight and noon are absolutely identical. And in in real terms, midnight and noon are as different as day and night. Right? And there's something we know. I mean, there's different dimensions of this. I mean, the time has passed. Circumstances have have passed, things have changed. And at that mo- one moment, they are, they are perfectly identical and they are perfectly, they're as separated as midnight is from this glorious Sunday noon. And that's, I think, how it was with Jesus' resurrected body. Tom Wright, one of the best scholars on the resurrection, he puts it this way. He says, It is though Jesus belongs both in our world and in a different world, one which intersects with our world at various points, but is not to be found in the same geography. I like that. Finally, I want you to... We're doing a lot of show and tell this morning. I don't... Didn't necessarily intend it that way. But if you look at your hand for a minute, I always, our hands are fascinating, aren't they? They are. This hand, your hand, this very hand, one day in probably the not so distant future, is no longer going to be covered with skin and fatty tissue and muscle. This hand is going to be all that, all that's. It's going to be that skeleton, that bone that's inside of it. I mean, if we were to x-ray the hand right now, we could see the bone. That bone is going to be all that's left of, of your hand. And then in a future period of time, certain how many years later, all that's left of that bone is dust. 
I always think it's kind of weird to like think of my hand. That's what's going to happen to it. And Cora and I were driving into church early this morning, and I don't want to get into much of the conversation, but she said, hey, Dad, you know, I'm going to graduate. I get the best graduation date uh, ever. I'm graduating in 2020. And I said, I graduated in 1994. That 26, this is going fast, Cora. This is, you look at, this is going fast. This, and yet, if the resurrection is true, you are not encouraged, but commanded to believe that those same bones that are inside your hand, that shape your hand, those bones will get reconstituted. That skin will be remade. That muscle that surrounds it right now will, will be reborn, not as a natural body, but as a new body that is, that is dominated and controlled somehow by the Spirit. Uh, Bob Lethem, a, th- a contemporary theologian, he makes the point this way. He says, Our resurrection bodies will be like Christ's resurrection bodies since our resurrection and His are effectively the same reality. They're just separated by an indefinite period of time. Then he goes on for the scientifically inclined. This makes no sense to me what he next says. But he says there's something of a parallel in this to the Einstein-Podorowski-Bell theory. Einstein postulated that the pairs of subatomic particles, that, sorry, the parts of a subatomic particle, such as a prion, separated by an infinite space, nevertheless behave identically. And his theory was confirmed empirically by the Bell experiment in 1964. Well, in the same way, the parts of the resurrection are separated by an indefinite amount of time and an indefinite amount of distance, but they will behave identically. What you see happening to him is what will happen to you. The Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, 11, is this very same Holy Spirit who will give life to our mortal bodies that was given to his. And it seems like every Easter year, I talk, and I have so much fun talking about the resurrection, just imagining the resurrection. Um, I don't think we spend nearly enough time imagining heaven and the resurrection. I spend plenty of time imagining my favorite baseball player you know, hitting a home run. I don't spend nearly enough time imagining the, the greatness. Of, imagine, you imagine, if your body were suddenly perfect so that no aspect of your appearance was in any way, to any degree, any longer influenced by the process of aging or decay. Perfect in no way influenced by any weakness or imperfection that's associated with life in this fallen world, what is your body going to look like? It's going to look, it's going to look like yourself at noon and not at midnight. And it's going to be incredible. It's going to look like yourself. It will be ourselves, but it will be us at noon and not at midnight. So much better. Our bodies are going to be similar to Jesus in, in, in every way, in every way except for, except for those, those wounds. So I tried to be provocative. I've gone too long here. I, I tried to be provocative in the sermon title this week. Thomas and Tattoos. You know, where, is, where, is, where is a tattoo found in this passage? 
Well, isn't a tattoo simply a scar that you've chosen to carry around in your body for the rest of your life? Isn't a tattoo just a chosen scar? You get it, don't you? These are the five chosen scars that he might, I don't know for certain, but I think he probably has chosen to enshrine in his body for the rest of the rest of, not only, I mean, eternity. That's how long he's going to live. And every one of our scars tell a story. I mean, you could do a great icebreaker question in a, in a group party or something would be, tell me, you know, point to a scar on your body and tell me the story about it. I could point to the scar on my chin. I fell ice skating in first grade in Plano, Texas, and that's what this is. I could, you could, every one of our scars tell a story, and he has taken, and every one of our tattoos, if you've got one, tells a story, and he's decided to, to be eternally tattooed, which tells a story of the, of the forgiveness of our sins. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it great? Okay, Amen.